flying by the seat of your pants. Look at the road ahead, get organized, and make a plan for once. Then all you have to do is sit back and execute that plan. Simple, right? I'm Meg Wallitzer. Stay with us as we take on fiction for the meticulous and makeshift alike. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Our program today is called Best Laid Plans, which is a reference to a poem by Scotsman Robert Burns. I'm not even going to attempt a Scottish brogue here, despite having watched Highlander, but the line goes like this. The best laid schemes o' mice and men gang after glay. The idea has subsequently been borrowed by John Steinbeck and your grandmother, and there's probably a clever kind of literary exterminator out there whose company is called Of Mice and Men. But you don't need to know the history of the phrase to understand its implications. All of us have crafted meticulous schemes to ensure that things turn out right for us and those we love. Maybe you've been plotting a vacation or a wedding or, who knows, a corporate takeover. Organizing these kinds of events takes focus and commitment. And yet, like the wee sleeket mouse whose life is upended in Burns's poem, To a Mouse, we often find our expectations disappointed. What comes after that? Well, that's what we'll explore in the stories on this show. The first piece, Dandelions, comes from writer Ben Lurie. Lurie is the author of many fable-like tales, which are collected in books such as Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day and Tales of Falling and Flying. This piece was commissioned by Selected Shorts for our anthology, Small Odysseys. It was performed by comic and actor Wyatt Cenac. Cenac is known for his tenure on The Daily Show, as well as his series, Wyatt Cenac's Problem Areas. Here, he brings us a tale that celebrates the hidden beauty of weeds. It was inspired by the author's tortoise, Horace. Now here's Wyatt Cenac with Ben Lurie's Dandelions. Dandelions. A man is standing in his yard one day when the whole place suddenly erupts in dandelions. Ah, says the man. He turns and runs inside and roots around under the sink for some pesticide. But when he finally finds it and goes back outside, the dandelions are gone. Every one. What the, says the man, but they were right here. He gets down on his hands and knees and inspects the lawn. All the rest of the day, the man keeps peering out the window. I just know those dandelions are going to come back, he says. But the dandelions don't come back, not a single one. Every time the man looks out, all he sees is an empty lawn. That night, the man goes and tells his friend about it. That's strange, his friend says, because the exact same thing happened to me last week. It was on Tuesday, I think. The man and his friend go to see some other people. Yep, they all say. Happened here, too. It turns out the whole town had the exact same experience. But why, they all say. What could it be? Some kind of nuclear accident, one says? A chemical leak? An act of God? Act of God by dandelion? Someone else scoffs. Pretty sure we can rule that one out. Everyone's in an uproar. No one knows what to do. What should we do, they all say. They stand there in silence. Someone raises a hand. What do we know about dandelions, they say. So the townspeople all go as one to the library. 
They ransack it for information on dandelions. After that, they go out to the community college and pester the botany professors. The townspeople quickly learn everything about dandelions. Dandelions are so interesting, they say. They start some investigations, they buy some lab equipment. Their research program gets underway. Every night, the townspeople hold extensive meetings to discuss dandelions and dandelion morphology. They share their discoveries and examine innovations in the field of dandelion development. Hey, someone says, let's grow the perfect dandelion. Yeah, somebody else says, let's do it. The townspeople all turn and look at one another. All right, they say, and then they get down to it. And in just one summer, they make tremendous strides. It's really nothing short of amazing. They manage to develop dandelion strains that are pink, blue, and black, and even a few that have polka dots. They've developed a couple dandelions that have clover-shaped leaves, and some that grow up to 47 feet tall. They've even managed to develop one dandelion that can talk. Hello, it keeps saying. Hello. Finally, the whole town decides to have a fair to show off their best dandelions. The fairgoers will vote, the mayor announces, and then at the end, we'll crown the perfect dandelion. The fair is set to take place in the middle of the town square, which is specially decorated for the occasion. There are banners and ribbons and great big colorful signs with illustrations on them of dandelions. The town has sent out invites to people all around, all around the region, the country, reporters from magazines, public officials, the vice president might come, but he doesn't. And it turns out he's not the only one who doesn't come. It turns out that no one comes at all. The townspeople stand waiting in the middle of the square, and they stand there and wait all morning long. How come nobody's here, someone finally says. How come no one's showing up? Maybe there was a great big traffic accident, someone says, and all of the roads are blocked off. Every single road, someone else says, coming from every direction. Maybe it was some kind of nuclear accident, someone says, a chemical leak or an act of God. Has anyone checked the TV, someone else asks. Can someone call the folks at Channel 9? I'll call my cousin in Stepford City, someone says. He said he and his family were going to come. So a couple people scurry off and make some phone calls while everyone else just stands around. Hello, hello, the talking dandelion keeps saying. <laughs> but right then, no one cares at all. And finally, when the news comes in, it's worse than they thought. It turns out, no one wants to see a dandelion fair. Turns out that people think that dandelions are stupid. Worse, they think they're weeds, someone says. Weeds, says someone else. It's absolutely scandalous. What do you mean weeds, someone says. What kind of people are these, someone asks. What kind of country is this? The townspeople all stand there. They don't know what to do. What should we do, they all say. I don't know, someone says. Me neither, says another. I might have an idea, third says. Everybody looks. A little girl steps forward. If they won't come to us, the girl says, how about we take the dandelions to them? 
Well, people say, that's an idea. But how can we possibly do that? Somebody says, what are we going to do, buy a fleet of trucks? And even if we did, we can't just spend our lives driving a bunch of flowers all around the world. Yeah, says someone else, we can't really do that. I have to go to work, someone says. Me too, says someone else. Us too, the others say. But just then, a little voice pipes up. Hello, the little voice calls out. Hello, hello, hello. The whole town turns to the talking dandelion, and a split second later, all their eyes go wide because they see that all the dandelions have turned. Those brightly colored petals of yellow or pink or black have transformed now into glimmering balls of white. There are a hundred billion seedlets now, all set to float away, waiting only for a breeze to hit them right. We're ready to do our part, they say, or at least they seem to say. All right, the people say, and make their plan. And they run home and come back, each trailing their extension cords and all the household fans they can lug. They line up all their fans, pointing this way and that. On the count of three, they say, one, two, hang on, a single voice calls out, everybody wait. And the mayor steps forward to address the crowd. There's one last order of business, he says, and I hope we can all agree on which of these is the perfect dandelion. And everybody claps as he kneels down and tapes a bright blue ribbon to the talking dandelion. Thank you, he says to it, for everything you've done and everything that you're about to do. Hello, the talking dandelion says. Hello, hello, hello. All right, the mayor says, come on, let's go. And everybody counts to three, and then all hit their buttons, and all of their electric fans turn on, and great big billowing gusts of wind immediately appear, and all the dandelion seeds are lifted up, and the dandelion seeds go flying this way and that, hurled and whirled about by the different winds, and they spin off through the sky, headed in a hundred million directions. Go out there and show them, people scream. Where do you think they'll go, one of the townspeople says. Do you think they'll go all the way to Mississippi? At least, someone responds as they dance across the field. I bet they go all the way to Atlantic City. And by that point, the dandelions are pretty much out of sight, disappearing over the distant hills. And pretty soon, the dancing and the reveling start to slow. Well, the mayor says, I guess that's that. I guess so, says someone else. But that was really fun. Yeah, it sure was, the others say. Hey, somebody calls out, what are you guys doing tonight? Any movies playing, someone asks. And gradually, the townspeople start to head for home. Only one man doesn't move. It's the guy from the beginning, the one with the pesticide. He's just standing there, his eyes angled down. He's staring at something on the sleeve of his coat. He slowly reaches down and lifts it off. It looks like a tiny little feathery snowflake. He holds it very carefully as he sets off. He walks back to his house and he stops out on the lawn and he gets down once more on his hands and knees and he digs a little hole right there in the greenest part of the grass and inside he carefully places the seed. All right now, little guy he says as he covers the hole with dirt. Lie still, he says.
everything's going to be all right. And he stands up and walks to his door, but then turns back. Good night, he says. Good night, good night, good night. That was Wyatt Cenac reading Dandelions by Ben Lurie. The ending reminded me a little of the ending of Charlotte's Web. After Charlotte dies, her spider babies sail away, just like those dandelions blowing everywhere. But in E.B. White's classic children's book, three little spiders end up staying behind. And in Laurie's story, one dandelion seed clings to the guy's sleeve. It's all kind of emotional. It just goes to show that anthropomorphism, when done right, never goes out of style. This story was recorded as part of an epic day of performance at Symphony Space in Manhattan. In addition to hearing 35 new short stories read aloud, the live audience was treated to songs, dances, and films inspired by the stories in the Small Odyssey's collection. Dandelions sparked a whimsical animated piece by the illustrator and filmmaker Michael Arthur. It really is a lovely companion to the story, and I highly recommend you take a look. It's waiting for you at selectedshorts.org. We also spoke with Wyatt Cenac backstage about his take on the story. It was really fun to read the story. It kind of felt a bit like a Dr. Seuss story. There was a whimsy to it that made it fun to try to capture as much as I could in the reading of it. When you're reading a story, it's a collective experience. And so it seemed as though the audience was engaged and they enjoyed the story and the moments that I thought were funny when I first read it. They responded in kind. And so I feel like that's also what's nice about getting to read a story in front of an audience is having those moments that as a reader, I had laughed at, smiled at, been drawn into, been moved by, and to then get to share that ride and journey with someone else and see okay, they're moved by those same things or they're moved differently by this other thing. That's interesting. Now I kind of want to go back and reread the story with that in mind. You know, doing stand-up, you've written something and you have have an idea of where you think the jokes are. I think this is funny. And an audience is either going to agree with you or not. This is something that I didn't write. And so... It's a different experience because I read it and it almost feels like I'm getting to both be the performer and an audience member at the same time. That was actor and comic Wyatt Cenac. Our next story about a plan that doesn't pan out is by Edwige Dantica. She is the writer behind vivid and lyrical works including Breath, Eyes, Memory and the memoir Brother, I'm Dying. She also writes a lot of deft nonfiction about Haiti, her country of origin, for outlets including The New Yorker. This piece, Cane and Roses, a Manifesto, was also commissioned for our Small Odysseys book. Cane and Roses, a Manifesto is an immigrant story, but as the subtitle makes clear, this isn't about a hard-working transplant delighting in fireworks and Coca-Cola. It's about how that immigrant's unfulfilled dreams might give way to desperation in an attempt to be recognized. Reading this piece is Anika Noni Rose. She is an accomplished actor known for films including Dreamgirls, as well as recent series such as Little Fires Everywhere. 
Here she is performing Edwige Danticas' Cane and Roses, A Manifesto. I don't need you to know who I am, just what I'm about to do. You don't have to know where I was born or where I live now, but maybe afterward you will. Or maybe you won't, because they might not find even a strand of my hair when this is all over. I suppose listing my grievances might rat me out. We all have grievances. We always did. We just have more ways of forcing you to listen now. I'm not going to tell you where here is. For all you know, I could be dictating this rather than writing it. Oh, does that give me away? If I'm writing, it must mean that I can read, unlike a big chunk of people in this world, that other 90% or close to 700 million who don't eat every day. Anyway, say I'm pissed because I remember how hard it was even to make it here. Say I remember the missed meals and the crusty eyes of the children who went to bed hungry and woke up even hungrier. And say I remember leaving the house just so I wouldn't have to watch them starve. Say I remember leaving for the day knowing full well I'm more likely to find death on the streets than food. Say one day I just kept going and never turned back because I couldn't look at those eyes anymore and I couldn't listen to the growling bellies in the middle of the night when the gunshots weren't drowning them out. Again, if I'm this person, and I'm not saying I am, I might be pissed because I crossed a desert where the sand wore my shoes down to threads, and the sand was starting to work on the soles of my feet when a truck came by and took me to the river or the ocean or around the walls or barbed wire fence or whatever barriers you have built. I might have barely been alive dreaming of cane fires, when I ended up with my head scraping the boot of your official, who waited hours before offering me some water. Because maybe he was wishing I'd die before becoming one more ward of the state, one more mouth to feed, one more wound to heal, one more body to find a bed for. Not even a bed, but a thin sheet full of holes, or a piece of plywood or cardboard, It would have been better for me to just die there at his feet. At least all he'd have to do is throw me back into the ocean or dig a hole in the sand to bury me with the bones of all those who died before. You can imagine why I might be pissed if, after making it through the hills, the mountains, the river, the ocean, the traffickers, you decide I should go back. Back to a home that no longer exists because everyone was killed while I was crossing deserts, rivers, seas. The actions I'm about to take are not going to give me my loved ones back. Both they and I might end up being just one line in the newspaper or a 30-second mention on TV. Who would do something like this, you'd ask yourself, and why? You'd have to go to profilers and other so-called experts to find out. I'll tell you this much. I'm not one of those people who imagines an afterlife. Whether you live one day, one year, 101 years, I believe that one life is all you get. I think we're all like fireflies. Something inside makes us light up at times, then go dark. A complicated mix of oxygen and bioluminescent enzymes. 
I once wrote a school report about this. It's one of the things that got me interested in science. It might have been my first step into learning how to produce the device I'll soon be attaching to my chest. The light the fireflies emits is cold. Otherwise, the firefly would set itself on fire. It's interesting how many useless things one can learn. If I'm captured, these useless things will be among my final words. Alive or dead, there's nothing left for me to say. Will some detailed profile of me end up soothing your pain? Would our not being alike comfort you? Maybe you'd end up telling yourself, I knew it! This is so typical of their kind. But what if I'm just like you? No matter who you think I am, you're wrong. You'll never know me, this one miserable firefly. Malthus was right. Premature death must, in some way or form, visit the human race. This is where we're all headed eventually, but where I'm headed soon. It's like when you throw a net in the ocean. Whatever gets caught can be eaten, even where there are rules demanding that you throw some of the smaller creatures back. I won't be throwing anything back. Small, large, they get caught, they get eaten. I'm sorry about that. I truly am. Because my gripe is not with everyone. Not everyone mistreated or persecuted me or my family. Besides, when you cast an actual net in the ocean these days, you're just as likely to catch trash as fish. Have you seen that picture of that dead sperm whale with over 200 plus pounds of trash in its stomach? There were miles of ropes inside that poor creature. Plastic bottles, trash bags, gloves, fishing nets, straws. The damn whale exploded after it died. Call me Ishmael. And Jonah, too. Imagine Jonah inside that whale. The poor fuck would have ended up smothered. Maybe this is all making you think you can pin me down intellectually. There might have been someone in my past who did these types of things, studied fireflies, read Malthus and Melville, threw nets into the ocean, and attended Sunday school. Your concern right now, though, if you are reading this before the act is done, should not be where I've been, but where I'm going. There are a lot of places where like-minded people gather. Churches, workplaces, government buildings, cafes, restaurants, stadiums, theaters, even hospitals. Mental hospitals. Immigration offices, too. I could go to a parade or some other large gathering. If you're reading this ahead of the act, will you be going to all of those places to try and find me? And how do you know there's not an army of us? I know what the word army evokes for you, in you. You've always had armies at your disposal. Now you have invisible weapons, drones for distant strikes. An elephant who stomps on a mouse doesn't deserve a medal, as my father used to say. Cowards! Some people will call me a coward, too. But you're more cowardly than I am. What if your villages, your towns, your cities had been decimated? Yes, I do know some big words. Words that you have taught me in your schools and your workplaces. I just want you to know how calm I'm feeling right now. It's the calmest I've been in some time. In the aftermath, if they manage to track me down, you better believe that some of the people who used to know me when they talked to journalists, either for the papers or for the TV news, or for some online outlet, 
or if they speak to detectives for the police investigation, whether in amazement or shock, they'll all be commenting on my calmness. They'll also be embarrassed that they never caught on to what I am planning to do. It just occurred to me that you might think that this document was initially created, whether by voice or hand, in the language in which you're reading it. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. Do you believe in ghosts? I am a ghost. Damnatio memoriae. A condemnation of memory. Before this, I wouldn't have appeared in any official accounts. Before this, the people who gave birth to me were living under borrowed names. Before this act, I washed dishes. I drove cabs. I worked in your gardens. I took care of your sick. I watched over your children. <laughs> I'm pulling your leg there. Of course, I'm not all of these people, but I can see how any of them would be as pissed at you as I am. Don't worry, I'm not going to be much longer. This will end as abruptly as it began. I just don't want to go without leaving anything behind. I'm already leaving no one behind. Listen, though, I will tell you some of the things I did enjoy. I loved going on tire swings with my father when I was a kid. I loved watching my mother press flowers into a notebook she always kept under her pillow. I've sometimes worn my hair in finger waves, which kind of looked like dreads. My mother did, too. My mother once tried to show me how to get out of a car gracefully in a miniskirt. I haven't slept with anyone. The miniskirt lesson was the closest Mama and I ever came to talking about sex. Sometimes I'd walk in on Papa giving Mama a foot rub after they'd both spent extra long hours at the hotel where he was a janitor and she was a maid. When I was a kid, I wanted a treehouse like the one some kids on TV had, an elaborate one with a porch and actual steps leading to the ground. I couldn't have a treehouse living in a tiny apartment in the middle of a city. Mama always said we were like bare root trees with no soil. She also said that if you cut your roots, you die. My roots are dead because my parents were my roots. But I'm no condemnation of memory. I am memory. I am the anthuriums and bougainvillea, hibiscus and spider lilies, flattened inside my mother's notebook with her fingerprints trapped on the other side of the clear tape. I can't leave her notebook and her flowers behind for others to discard. I can't throw away her calligraphy-like handwriting documenting the names of those flowers and the dates on which Papa had given them to her. I can't bring myself to destroy all of this or to leave it behind to be handled like evidence at a crime scene. Papa used to warn me not to simply look at the tip of his fingers while he was pointing to the stars. You are memory, our memory. This is why we gave you this strange name in this strange land, and in this new language, this name that always gets puzzled looks from everyone we meet. There you have it. How hard will it be to track down someone with my name? One day, I plan to go back to the farm where my parents met, the one Mama's family owned and where Papa was taking care of the cattle since he was a boy, before the gangs came. That farm had chickens, goats, horses, and fresh air, too. 
Before the gangs came. Before the gangs came. Before the gangs came. The doctors are always telling me that fresh air can do wonders for me, even though they try to control my fresh air. What they can't control, try as they might, are what they call my episodes. All I know is that I'm not going back into anything that's like a prison anymore, even if they're promising to make me better. Now I know for sure I've given away too much, but it's never wrong to tell the truth, even though that didn't work out so well for my parents. They confessed when your officials came. It was as if they'd been expecting that visit ever since they got here. I've read so much about this, not just in terms of planning what to do, what to wear, where to go, and what to carry, but I've also been researching a lot about the tools that will be used to interpret my actions. All you need to know is that I am the reason they crossed the rivers and desert to get here. I was born here, so I'm allowed to stay, at least for now. But after all these many years, they were shipped back. And on the first night after they arrived, they were taken for ransom for the kind of money neither I nor anyone else I know had. And yes, I have heard, Mr. and Madam Profiler, that actions like mine can be socially contagious. This wouldn't be the first time that me and my people have been compared to a disease. I told you this would end as abruptly as it began. It did for them, for Mama and Papa. So no, in the end, I'm not going to do it after all. I went out and got all the tools and supplies. I still have everything. I just had to see how far I could go. I needed to see how far I would go. In the end, I can't. I can't do it. Not because I'm scared. Not because I'm afraid to die. It's just that it would mean erasing them, erasing us, wiping out their memory. The thorn must be watered for the sake of the rose. These were their final words to me in that detention center. They said it together as if they'd been rehearsing it for years. The thorn must be watered, she said, for the sake of the rose, he added. I was too numb too shocked or too drugged to speak. But if I'd been able to put some words together, I would have reached for a different metaphor. Maybe something like, the weeds must be burnt for the sake of the cane. Both their childhoods were filled with cane fires. The way they told it right before the harvest, a fire would be purposely started at the cane stalks. Then the flames would be allowed to rise up to the outer leaves to scorch away the trash. The smoke would leap above the flames, separating from them like spirits, soaring high above the fields towards the sky. Without the fire, their cane could not be harvested. The cane fires had always been with them. The roses and thorns came much later to them. And this land, just like I did, Still, in their minds, they were the thorns and I was the rose. But they were wrong. We were all the cane.
That was Anika Noni Rose reading Cane and Roses, a manifesto by Edwige Dantica. Given Dantica's Haitian roots and the extreme turmoil in Haiti over the last few years, this could easily be read as one Haitian's immigration story from the Caribbean to the U.S. But Dantica is smartly creating a larger kind of parable here about the hopes and expectations of so many migrants and what might happen when their plans get dashed on foreign shores. It's dark and a little terrifying, and it's meant to be. If you enjoyed Dantica's story or the Ben Lorry story that kicked off the show, consider picking up a copy of our selected shorts anthology, Small Odysseys. It's readily available on our website, selectedshorts.org, or at your favorite bookstore. When we return, a romance modeled after early film stars Laurel and Hardy. Yes, two people fall hard. Either it's love or a highly convincing pratfall. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. If you missed the first part of the show, check out our podcast. There you can find past episodes along with bonus interviews and much more. Just head to selectedshorts.org or wherever you get your podcasts. In this show, we're listening to stories about plans that go awry. At the outset of romantic relationships, there are plenty of dreams about what might be. But over time, dreams can take different shapes, and that's where our next story comes in. The Laurel and Hardy love affair is by the master of accessible speculative tales, Ray Bradbury. Bradbury wrote novels including Fahrenheit 451 and collections such as The Illustrated Man. This piece stands out in his catalog as something heartfelt and sentimental without the use of Martians. Now, if anyone listening was born after, say, 1985, the following quick summary is for you. Laurel and Hardy. Physical comedians, proficient in slapstick, one chunky, one rail thin, early talky era, 1930s. Famous film, The Music Box, about moving a piano up an infinite flight of stairs. Famous line from said film, why don't you do something to help me? The actor Tate Donovan has been in demand for decades, showing up in series as varied as The O.C., Damages, and the reboot of MacGyver. And here he is now, performing Ray Bradbury's story, The Laurel and Hardy Love Affair. The Laurel and Hardy Love Affair. He called her Stanley. She called him Ollie. That was the beginning. That was the end of what we will call the Laurel and Hardy Love Affair. She was 25 and he was 32 when they met at one of those dumb cocktail parties where everyone wonders what they're doing there. But no one goes home, so everyone drinks too much and lies about how grand a late afternoon it all was. They did not, as often happens, see each other across a crowded room. And if there was romantic music to background their collision, it couldn't be heard, for everyone was talking at one person and staring at another. 
They were, in fact, ricocheting through a forest of people, but finding no shade trees. He was on his way for a needed drink. She was eluding a lovesick stranger when they locked paths in the exact center of the fruitless mob. They dodged left and right a few times and then laughed, and he, on impulse, seized his tie and twiddled it at her, wiggled his fingers. Instantly smiling, she lifted her hand to pull the top of her hair into a frowsy tassel, blinking and looking as if she'd been struck on the head. Stan, he cried in recognition. Ollie, she exclaimed, where have you been? Why don't you do something to help me? he exclaimed, making wide, fat gestures. They grabbed each other's arms, laughing again. I, she said, with her face brightening even more, I know the exact place, not two miles from here, where Laurel and Hardy in 1930 carried that piano crate up and down 150 steps. Well, he cried, let's get out of here. The car door slammed, his car engine roared, Los Angeles raced by in late afternoon sunlight. He braked the car where she told him to park. I can't believe it, he murmured, not moving. He peered around at the sunset sky. Lights were coming on all across Los Angeles down the hill. He nodded, are those the steps? All 150 of them. She climbed out of the open-topped car. Come on, Ollie. Very well, Stan. They walked over to the bottom of yet another hill and gazed up along the steep incline of concrete steps towards the sky. The faintest touch of wetness rimmed his eyes. She was quick to pretend not to notice, but she took his elbow. Her voice was wonderfully quiet. Go on up, she said. Go on. She gave him a tender push. He started up the steps, Counting, and with each half-whispered count, his voice took on an extra decibel of joy. By the time he reached 57, he was a boy playing a wondrous old new game, and he was lost in time, and whether he was carrying the piano up the hill or whether it was chasing him down, he could not say. Hold it, he heard her call far away. Right there, he held still swaying on step 58, smiling wildly as if accompanied by proper ghosts, and turned. Okay, she called, come back down. He started down, color in his cheeks and a peculiar suffering of happiness in his chest. He could hear the piano following him. Hold it right there. She had a camera in her hands, seeing it, his right hand flew instinctively to his tie to flutter it in the evening air. Now me, she shouted, and raced up to hand him the camera. And he marched down and looked up, and there she was, doing the thin shrug and the puzzled and hopeless face of Stan, baffled by life but loving it all. He clicked the shutter, wanting to stay here forever. She came slowly down the steps and peered into his face. Why, she said, you're crying. She placed her thumbs under his eyes to press the tears away. She tasted the result. Yep, real tears. He looked at her eyes, which were almost as wet as his. 
Another fine mess you've gotten us in, he said. Oh, Ollie. Oh, Stan. He kissed her gently. And then he said, are we going to know each other forever? Forever, she said. And that was how the long love affair began. They had real names, of course, but those don't matter, for Laurel and Hardy always seemed the best thing to call themselves. For the simple fact that she was 15 pounds underweight, and he was always trying to get her to add a few pounds, and he was 20 pounds overweight, and she was always trying to get him to take off more than his shoes. But it never worked, and it was finally a joke, the best kind, which wound up being, you're Stan, no two ways about it, and I'm Ollie, let's face it, and oh God, dear young woman, let's enjoy the mess, the wonderful mess, all the while we're in. It was then, while it lasted, and it lasted some while, a French parfait, an American perfection, a wilderness from which they would never recover to the end of their lives. From that twilight hour on the piano stairs on, their days were long, heedless, and full of that amazing laughter that paces the beginning and the run-along rush of any great love affair. They only stopped laughing long enough to kiss, and only stopped kissing long enough to laugh at how odd and miraculous it was to find themselves with no clothes on to wear, in the middle of a bed as vast as life, and as beautiful as morning. And sitting there in the middle of warm whiteness, he shut his eyes, shook his head, and declared pompously, I have nothing to say. Yes, you do, she cried. Say it. And he said it. And they fell off the edge of the earth. Their first year was pure myth and fable, which would grow outsized when remembered 30 years on. They went to see new films and old films, but mainly Stan and Ollie. They memorized all the best scenes and shouted them back and forth as they drove around midnight Los Angeles. He spoiled her by treating her childhood growing up in Hollywood as very special. And she spoiled him by pretending that his yesteryear on roller skates out front of the studios was not in the past, but right now. She proved it one night on a whim. She asked where he had roller skated as a boy and collided with W.C. Fields, where he asked Fields for his autograph, and where it was that Fields signed his book and handed it back and cried, There you are, you little son of a bitch. Drive me there, she said. And at 10 o'clock that night, they got out of the car in front of Paramount Studio, and he pointed to the pavement near the gate, and he said, he stood here, and she gathered him in her arms, and she kissed him and said gently, now, now where was it you had your picture taken with Marlena Dietrich? He walked her 50 feet across the street from the studio. In the late afternoon sun, Marlena stood here, and she kissed him again, longer this time, and the moon rising like an obvious magic trick, filling the street in front of the empty studio. She let her soul flow over into him like a tipped fountain, and he received it and gave it back 
and was glad. Now she said quietly, where was it you saw Fred Astaire in 1935 and Ronald Coleman in 37 and Jean Harlow in 36? And he drove her to all those three different places all around Hollywood until midnight and they stood and stood and she kissed them as if it would never end. And that was the first year. During that year, they went up and down those long piano steps at least once a month and had champagne picnics halfway up and discovered an incredible thing. I think it's our mouths, he said. Until I met you, I never knew I had a mouth. Yours is the most amazing in the world, and it makes me feel as if mine were amazing too. Were you ever really kissed before I kissed you? Never. Nor was I. To have lived this long and not known mouths, Dear mouth, she said, shut up and kiss. <laughs> but at the end of the first year, they discovered an even more incredible thing. He worked at an advertising agency and was nailed in one place. She worked at a travel agency and would soon be flying everywhere. Both were astonished. They never noticed before. But now that Vesuvius had erupted and the fiery dust was beginning to settle, they sat and looked at each other one night, and she said faintly, goodbye. What? He said. I can see a goodbye coming. He looked at her face, and it wasn't sad like Stan in the films. It was sad like herself. I feel like the ending of that Hemingway novel where Two people ride along in the late day and say how it would be if it would go on forever, but they know now they won't. Stan, he said, this is no Hemingway novel. This can't be the end of the world. You'll never leave me. But it was a question, not a declaration, and suddenly she moved, and he blinked at her and said, what are you doing down there? Nut, she said. I'm kneeling on the floor, and I'm asking your hand. Marry me, Ollie. Come away with me to France. I've got a new job in Paris. No, don't, don't say anything. Just shut up. No one has to know I've got money this year and will support you while you write your great American novel. But, he said, you've got a portable typewriter and a ream of paper and, and me. Say it, Ollie. Will you come? Help, don't marry me. We'll live in sin, but fly with me, yes? And watch us go to hell in a year and bury us forever? Are you that afraid, Ollie? Don't you believe in me or, or you or anything? God, why are men such cowards? And why the hell do you have such thin skins and are afraid of a woman like a ladder to lean on? Listen. I've got things to do, and you're coming with me. I can't leave you here. You'll fall tomorrow. That means you, Paris, and my job. Your novel will take time, but you'll do it. Now, do you do it here and feel sorry for yourself? Or do we live in a cold water walk-up flat in the Latin Quarter, a long way off from here? This is my one and only offer, Ollie. I've never proposed. I won't ever propose again. It's hard on my knees. Well, 
have we had this conversation before, he said. A dozen times in the last year, but you've never listened. You were hopeless. No, no, in love and helpless. You've got one minute to make up your mind. 60 seconds. She was staring at her wristwatch. Get up off the floor, he said, embarrassed. If I do, it's out the door and gone. 49 seconds to go, Ollie. Stan, he groaned. 30. She read her watch. 20. I've got one knee off the floor. 10. I'm beginning to get the other knee up. Five. One. And she was standing on her feet. What brought this on, he said. I'm heading for the door. I don't know, maybe I thought about it more than I dared even notice. We are very special, wondrous people, Ollie. And I don't think our like will ever come again in the world, at least not to us, or I'm lying to myself, and I, I probably am, but I must go, and you're free to come along. But can't face it or don't know it, and now she reached out. My hand is on the door, and, and, he said quietly, I'm crying, she said. He started to get up, but she shook her head. No, no, don't touch me. If you touch me, I'll cave in, and to hell with that. I'm going. But once a year will be forbearance day, or forgiveness day, or whatever the hell you want to call it. Once a year, I'll show up at our flight of steps. Same hour, same time as that night when we first went there. And if you're there to meet me, I'll kidnap you, or you, me, and, but don't bring along and, and show me your damn bank balance or give me any of your lip. Stan, he said. My God, she mourned. What? This door is heavy. I can't move it. She wept. There, it's moving. There, she wept more. I'm gone. The door shut. Stan! He ran to the door and grabbed the knob. It was wet. He raised his fingers to his mouth and tasted the salt, then opened the door. The hall was already empty. The air where she had passed was just coming back together. Thunder threatened when the two halves met. There was a promise of rain. He went back to the steps on October 4 every year for three years, but she was never there. And then he forgot for two years, but in the autumn of the sixth year, he remembered and he went back in the late sunlight and walked up the stairs because he saw something halfway up and it was a bottle of good champagne with a ribbon and a note on it, delivered by someone and the note read, Ollie, dear Ollie, date remembered, but in Paris. Mouths not the same, but happily married. 
Love, Stan. After that, every October, he simply did not go visit the stairs. The sound of that piano rushing down that hillside, he knew would catch him and take him along to where he did not know. And that was the end, or almost the end, of the Laurel and Hardy love affair. There was, by amiable accident, a final meeting. Traveling through France 15 years later, he was walking on the Champs-Élysées at twilight one afternoon with his wife and two daughters. When he saw this handsome woman coming the other way, escorted by a very sober-looking older man and a very handsome, dark-haired boy of 12, obviously her son. As they passed, the same smile lit both their faces in the same instant. He twiddled his necktie at her. She tousled her hair at him. They did not stop, they kept going. But he heard her call back along the Champs-Élysées, the last words he ever heard her say. Another fine mess you've gotten us in. And then she added the old, the familiar name by which she had gone in the years of their love. And she was gone. And his daughters and wife looked at him. And one daughter said, did that lady call you Ollie? What lady, he said. Dad, said the other daughter, leaning in to peer at his face. You're crying. No. Yes, you are, isn't he, Mom? Your papa, said his wife, as you well know, cries at telephone books. <laughs> no, he said. Just 150 steps and a piano. Remind me to show you girls someday. They walked on, and he turned and looked back a final time. The woman with her husband and son turned at that very moment. Maybe he saw her mouth the words, so long, Ollie. Maybe he didn't. He felt his own mouth move in silence. So long, Stan. And they walked in opposite directions along the Champs-Élysées in the late night of an October sun. That was The Laurel and Hardy Love Affair by Ray Bradbury, read by Tate Donovan. So, a beautiful romance with a bittersweet finish. Maybe not what either the Laurel or Hardy of the story expected, perhaps, but a practical conclusion to an all-encompassing and youthful kind of love. This conceit would not work with all comedy acts. I do not relish the idea of a Three Stooges love affair. Noses would get twisted, seltzer would get sprayed. But it's possible the story reminded you of the funny and endearing names that you and someone else once called each other. Maybe funny and endearing only to you two, which, after all, is the point. In the stories we've just heard, what matters is how we balance what actually happens to us in life and those other grandiose plans. How well do we embrace the unexpected while trying to realize our dreams? That's up to each of us. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. (laughs) 
Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.